Hello everyone and welcome to this brand new episode of Writer's Book Club. I'm Michelle Barraclough and each month I take a deep dive with an author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. It's so good to be with you again. I'm bringing you a cracking episode this month with the one and only New York Times bestselling author Sally Hepworth. I know that so many of you love Sally's novels. She really is going from strength to strength. And isn't it delightful to see another Aussie writer smashing it in America? As always with my interviews, we got into the nitty gritty of Sally's writing process for Darling Girls. And of course, she delivered some absolute gems. How she gets into the minds and bodies of her characters, which we called method writing. How the universe gives you little winks here and there to say that you're heading in the right direction with an idea. We talked about how she lives by the nifty 350 or the dirty 330, depending on the day. We also touched on how she handles backstory and pacing, which are, you know, two things that we often struggle with as writers. She went into quite a bit of detail about what the edit on the novel was like and about the two kinds of research she did for this novel. I think you're going to get so much out of this chat. I certainly did. For those of you who haven't read Darling Girls, let me tell you about it. It's not just secrets buried at wild meadows. For as long as they can remember, Jessica, Nora and Alicia have been told how lucky they are. Rescued from family tragedies and raised by a loving foster mother on an idyllic farming estate, they were given an elusive second chance of a happy family life. But their childhood wasn't the fairy tale everyone thinks it was. And when a body is discovered under the home they grew up in, the foster sisters find themselves thrust into the spotlight as key witnesses. Or are they prime suspects? And let me tell you, this was a cracking read. The weekend I read it, I took it everywhere and just snuck in little bits of reading. And the beauty of Sally's books, and this is where she gets the pacing right, is these short chapters. So you just think, oh, I'll just read one more. It's highly addictive. And this reminds me, there are two absolutely cracking twists in the book, neither of which I saw coming. And Sally talks a bit about those two in the chat. For the two people in the writing world who don't know who Sally Hepworth is, let me tell you all the things. She is the New York Times bestselling author of nine novels, most recently, Darling Girls. Her novel, The Mother-in-Law, which was written in 2019, has been optioned for a TV series by Hollywood actress and producer Amy Poehler. Drawing on the good, the bad and the downright odd of human behaviour, Sally writes incisively about family, relationships and identity. Her domestic thriller novels are laced with quirky humour, sass and a darkly charming tone. Sally's novels are available all around the globe in English and have been translated into 20 languages. She has sold more than one million books worldwide. Please enjoy my chat with the fabulous Sally Hepworth. Sally, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for coming on in what must be a very busy promotional period for you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I, I'm very happy to have someone to talk to as I sit in my hotel room and you're about to have my lunch. Between gigs. Yes, it's good fun. Always happy to chat. Hey, congratulations on the release of Darling Girls, your ninth book. It's another unputdownable cracker of a novel, Sally. Wow. Well, that's so lovely to hear. Thank you. Now, Sally, like many writers, one of the beautiful, shiny little diamonds of lockdown in 2020 and 2021 was tuning into your 
Writerly Wednesdays on Instagram where you talked about your writing craft and your process and publishing, sometimes uh, makeup and outfits as well and what was arriving (laughs) in the post, Um, but all manner of writerly goodness. So thank you on behalf of all the crazy locked down writers. That was so good. (laughs) Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm so glad that it was reaching people and I still hear from people who said that that helped them get started or get finished or, you know, get through the middle of a project. So that's great to hear. Yeah. And they were perfect because they were just these little nuggets of, you know, wisdom, rightly wisdom. Um, (laughs) And, you know, well, today is Wednesday. Are you ready to do a little rightly Wednesday deep dive into Darling Girls with me? I am. So fitting. (laughs) I didn't realise it was Wednesday. All the days are blurring into another. (laughs) I can only imagine. Also, I think your kids have gone back in Melbourne, but ours are still on holiday here in Sydney. Oh, commiserations. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, cramming (laughs) things in the cracks. (laughs) Nelly, I'd love to start with your initial inspiration for Darling Girls and how you knew that it was a novel-worthy idea and that you'd be able to sort of explode it into a whole novel. (laughs) You never know for sure. That's the honest answer. I mean, I suppose a great thing about having a fairly uh, good idea about what I write, and I call it family dysfunctionality with a side of murder, <laughs> which is my, my publisher calls it domestic suspense. But having that in my head, I always know that it's going to start with a, a familial relationship at the heart of it, at least from a thematic point of view, if not the plot. Uh, and so I usually find that family relationship as the as the catalyst and so I I was looking for a family relationship I've done quite a few of them so you want something new and foster siblings was something that interested me but I didn't have a lot of experience with it or any experience with it myself and I think sometimes these books can come to you at the right time so at the particular time I was looking for an idea a friend of a friend was fostering and um, the mutual friend that we had was always telling stories about it, about the fostering experience to me. And I found myself really hungry for these stories. They were so uplifting in some cases. They were very tragic in other cases. And there was one story that my friend told me that her friend had been fostering two little boys who had come from different families, a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. And they had been both living in her care for three months and they'd started to refer to each other as brothers. And she hadn't had that before and she'd noticed this really lovely little bond between these little boys. And and she had been thinking about just the importance of family, particularly for a young child on their own in a new unfamiliar environment and that need that we have to to connect with people and, and make them your family and that's just one little story of it i mean you you see it with men in war times who create you know those family bonds or people moving to a new country and i thought yeah this is something that could be at the heart of the book uh but then it was around that time and this is what i mean that the universe gives you little gifts or, or gives you a little wink to say that you're going in the right direction i read an article about a three-year-old girl who had been Uh, gone missing from foster care over in America and then 20 years later she had been a a woman had been watching a tv program about missing children and she saw this three-year-old girl and thought gee she looks quite a lot like me 
And she ended up getting a DNA test that was able to prove that, in fact, she was that three-year-old girl who had gone missing from foster care. And she had been adopted when she was three and a half. She didn't know where she'd come from before that. And they were able to sort of solve that that mystery. And I don't, if you're worried, if you're listening and you haven't read the book, I don't actually rewrite that tale, but that was just a little bit of an inspiration for maybe there's a missing child, uh, maybe there is something that's happened to that child, and uh, and then three uh, non-related uh, girls, in my case, because I like to write about women, who grew up together and decided to to know each other as sisters, and that, that was what became Darling Girls. Yeah, it's like the ultimate sister from another mister thing. I mean, we've always mm. had, we've all had those situations, haven't we, where we really connect with another woman and we're like, oh, God, we're so similar. Surely we're related. <laughs> yes, exactly. They become your tribe. They do. I also love the way you talk about how things coalesce and just come to us in a, you know, you hear a conversation and you hear a radio interview or you pick up an article and all of that coalesces around this idea that you're sort of flirting with and then you go, oh, there's my novel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does. It's not as simple as that. That The novel wish doesn't it was. Just, just appear. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Magic wand. Thank you, universe. <laughs> but there is, there is some magic to it. There's, there's, sitting in the chair and, you know, yeah. uh, making sure that you're there doing it. But there is definitely magic there if you kind of tune into it. Yeah. Well, speaking of sitting in the chair, how did the process of writing Darling Girls roll out? Was it a similar process to your other novels or did it differ in any way? It's similar in the sense that I am a full-time author. During that period of getting that first draft out, I am at the desk a lot. Uh, I'm lucky enough to you know, it is my full-time job and uh, when I'm not with the kids, I'm able to do that as opposed to a lot of authors who have a day job and then come back and write at night. So I will try and get that first draft out as fast as I can, even if that means I write seven days a week just for that first draft period, then I'll do it, you know, just a few hours even just to keep that getting into it every day will just help loosen the story and, and help to get it out. Uh I do write uh, in short bursts, so 350 words at a time. It's a little technique I call the nifty 350 or the dirty 330 is someone else who. <laughs> I love that. That's better. <laughs> <laughs> better. Depends how many words you want to write. And, uh, and that really helps just to get the words on the page and not to worry too much about what the words even are. Just It's just about letting it pour out of you in that early stage. And uh yeah, I, I'll, I'll write sort of 2,000 words a day, at least five days a week, and I will uh, have a little bit of a plot. I, I used to consider myself a plotter after one or two or three books, and I've never truly thought of myself as a pantser, which I'm sure your listeners know, you know, the, the two sides, not, not planning and planning. But now I will definitely say I'm... I'm more, I'm something in the middle, I think. So I will plan mm. the main turning points along the way, you know, the, the kind of call to action and then the, the end of the beginning, the midpoint, the crisis and the climax, and then off I go. And that was, that was true with Darling Girls. And in the end, a lot of the stuff, even those five things that I planned got thrown out and I felt my way through 
I don't know if that's something I'll keep doing. I, I do kind of like the idea of a plan because it gives me confidence that I can, you know, go forth and and really, uh, you know, there will be a book to finish. But, yeah, every time's a little bit different. I think different stories require different levels of planning depending on where I am emotionally. Like sometimes I'm a bit more capable of feeling my way through, whereas other times I feel like I need that structure of planning. So this one was probably more loose and I was I was more open to to what was going to happen rather than needing to have it all planned in advance and certainly the twist that everyone keeps talking about the final twist that was not planned that was something I just did in the spare of the moment <laughs> the spare of the moment and then I did have to go back and make it work it wasn't just something I threw in and then <laughs> typed the end and it was done but uh yeah I think probably being open to what this particular book needs in terms of process and structure is is how I do it now. Because mm. I remember you talking about the Nifty 350 when you first started doing those and it was a way for you to very quickly get back into the story by checking out that plan and that spreadsheet and just going, yeah. right, this is what I'm writing today and just being able to kind of quickly get back into the story. But I will say that I still know what it is that's coming next and so right. I wonder how much... I have stopped plotting and structuring because I've internalised a lot of it, a lot of what I was doing. That was a kind of scaffolding as I was learning to write. And, I mean, I'm still learning to write, let's face it, but as I was getting used to that process and now when I go to sleep at night, every night when I'm writing a book, I'm working through where I'm up to and what's going to come next. If I'm reading another book, I'm looking at what they're doing and thinking, oh, this could be a scene so whether or not I've actually written it down, this is what's going to happen, or I've just kind of had it up here and when I sit down to start, that's what's coming out. Maybe it's just all moved to my head. I don't know. But it would be a rare day that I would sit down and have no idea what was going to come next. Usually each chapter leads to the next thing, so I'm I'm not completely flying blind. Yeah. I love the way also that you've stuck with that same structure or not structure but just that that scaffolding as you call it with the, yes. the turning points and what have you there was a book originally wasn't there that you sort of got yes. that from I thought that would be quite helpful for our listeners if they are on the start of their journey it's called it's called the plot whisperer by Martha Alderson and it's funny because recently uh, that's the the go-to book that I will recommend and there are a few others I love writing the breakout novel by Don Donald Maas oh, it's, it's a, a great one, one. Sally, one of your superpowers is writing character. Darling Girls is told from the point of view of four women, essentially, each with her own very distinctive personality. How did you go about developing the voice for each character and making them distinct? And sort of further to that, what part do you think dialogue and word choice play in creating those distinctions? Is it something that you're aware of as you're writing? Not really. It's so I, I. It's so hard to answer technical questions like that. Like I think mm -hmm. about and, and as an aspiring author, they were the questions I wanted to be answered. Particularly things like character that are very intangible, or that you know the famous voice. Everyone wants to hear voice, and I think what what is voice, and how do I get one? <laughs> so so for character, it's it's not really. Sorry to everyone's listening something that I could say, this is how you do it. The closest I could get is to say that you you sort of have to become that person. And, and at the start, 
you only know a few things about them usually. Or in my case, I only know a few things about them. With some characters, that's not always the case. The character of Nora in this book came to me very strongly. I knew who she was from from the beginning. She's great. I love Nora. Yeah, she's one of my favourite characters that I've created, actually. Does everyone love Nora while you've been going around? Does everyone go, I love Nora? (laughs) Yeah, they have a few, and so a lot of people haven't read it yet, and uh, mm. and so, but all the ones that have will come up and say, yeah. "I loved Nora." There's so your incentive, I'm people. Pleased. You need to find out about Nora. So if that's not an incentive to go, apart from the twists and fabulous writing, but you need to you need to meet Nora. <laughs> Nora and her dogs. And her- so I think it's really rather than you know breaking it down to word choice or to you know how do you do it, it's more of a who am I writing? Whose perspective am I writing from today? And how did they see the world? And so in the case of Darling Girls, we have three women. They're all around the same age. So that's where you're in danger of, of characters, you know, ha- having crossover and, and finding it difficult to know who is who. They also all grew up in foster care. And, you know, so there, there's a lot of crossover. And so I kind of started the book with how is each of these girls damaged by their childhood by the way we're all damaged by our childhood as happy or otherwise you know (laughs) what we spend our lives you know dealing with but but how are they and how is it you know in each case it was different from another one and so especially if your characters are a little bit larger than life like Nora like Fern in one of my previous books The Good Sister you can go in and you know that Let's take Nora, for example. She's going to be very intolerant. So if she's waiting in the line at a restaurant and they're late, she's thinking, looking at the waiter and thinking, you know, you're not working hard enough. How much are you getting paid? You, you should, It's too much. And maybe you should get fired. You probably, you know, had, I don't know, like the, the thoughts that she would be having would be very straightforward and not very happy. Whereas Jessica, for example, who is a home organiser, that's her business. She's very into how things look and things being perfect. So if she was standing in a line, she would be noticing perhaps how the restaurant is organised. She might notice what some people are wearing, whether she liked it or not. She might be looking at her watch and watching the, the time tick by. And then we have Alicia, who is the other sister who is a social worker Again, very different from her other sisters. She might be looking at some of the children in the restaurant and wondering if they're happy and what their childhood was like and noticing a little interaction between a child and her mother, um, whether it be good and bad. And so it's not, and as soon as you can step into their head and and know the character, which, by the way, doesn't always happen right at the beginning. Sometimes I'll get halfway through a book or to the end of the book, you know, it's the final kind of moment that makes me realise, oh, that's who they are. And so at the beginning, they need to be kind of the opposite of that. So it's about knowing them rather than any kind of technical things that you would do and not just getting the things that they say right, but everything in that that chapter should be things that they would notice and see. Um, and, And to be careful, I suppose, to not, write sentences that are beautiful that wouldn't necessarily be something that that character would say or see or notice or find beautiful. I think that's a wonderful answer to put yourself in the character's body basically and see the world with their eyes. 
like Alicia, she's just that she's softer. She will grin and shrug and have a joke and call this older kid that she's dealing with mate. And Nora would definitely do a lot of eye rolling and she does. She eye rolls. She's like, oh, my God, you know, here are all the reasons why I don't like you (laughs) in my head. Yeah, And and sometimes it comes out, but she is much more forthright. And particularly in those first few chapters, I think if people do read those, they will see that the the way they act and the way they are in the world and the way they speak definitely speaks to their characters. Yes, and you're exactly right. It starts with knowing who they are and yes. being in their head and seeing through their eyes. And then, you know, words like mate and, and things like that, I know exactly, um, I, I remember writing them, but there wasn't any thought to it like she calls people mate. It's not as kind of connected. It's just that I am now Alicia and this is what she says and this is how she speaks. And that sounds a bit airy-fairy and I am a very much a pragmatic, hard-nosed Australian woman and, you know, not airy-fairy about writing. But I do think uh, that if you can really get to the the how rather than the nuts and bolts of why don't we get this character to call someone mate or why don't we get this character to, you know, be violent or whatever, it's really much more about who are they and I need to be them. I love that advice because I think sometimes we do just get into our own head. Yes. I, I, I don't know if I'm doing aspiring authors a disservice to say this because it may be that it's something that starts with word choice until you start doing it intuitively. And, you know, I would never discourage anyone from doing that because we all learn differently and and we all, you know, have to do it a certain number of times before it becomes intuitive. I suppose what I'm saying is that the mo- I think the most important thing that you can do is really try and channel the entirety of who that character is when you're in their perspective rather than just going for words or or dialogue. I think it's it's about the whole thing. Yeah, because then it can be superficial. And yes. I guess what you're saying is it's sort of like method acting. It's the writing version kind of, of method acting, you know, like do a Meryl yes. Streep and get into the character. Yes, exactly right. That is, that's very much more articulately said than, than oh. I did. It's method writing. You, I'm going to steal it. It's surprising with, you know, bloody menopause brain that articulate things are coming out of my mouth. But, hey, let's just take the wins <laughs> where we can, right? Together with the two of us, we will get these words out. Two perimenopausal women, one conversation. Make a whole articulate (laughs) woman. So still on characters, the wonderful Petronella McGovern, uh, who I believe you know. Yes, I love her. She sent me an email and said, congratulations, Sally. I absolutely love the book and I thought it was a masterclass in characterisation. The three darling girls are also real and believable and different. So she asked about developing characters, which we've talked about. Mm. But she also asked, did you do any research into how trauma affects child development? Yes, I did. Yes. And thank and Petronella is a friend of mine and is so wonderfully supportive to everyone in the um, writing community. So check out her books. So so two things. I did two sort of avenues of research. The first one was I actually went onto Instagram and put a call out for any women uh, who had grown up in foster care in Australia, uh, particularly Victorian women, but there were a few in New South Wales as well. 
and and also social workers. I spoke to a couple of social workers and a couple of foster mothers. Uh, but my main conversations were with 12 women who were very kind to, to volunteer to speak with me. And it was the most... I, I, I can honestly say I'm forever changed by these conversations that I had with these women. And I, I think the one caveat is, of course, these women are now similar kind of in their 40s and they are active on Instagram and alive and willing to talk about their experience, which, of course, you know, does give us a certain group of people because we know that that some people will not be wanting to talk and things like that. So that skews things a little bit. But what was so fascinating, and my angle, like the question goes, was how how did that experience affect you as an adult? What was it like when you were a child? What have you taken from that experience and while we can all imagine you know people say I can't imagine but we do imagine and and we think we have an idea of what it might be like I, I was so far so far from from what I thought and each woman here was the really interesting part each woman had a completely different experience from some experiences that we might describe as positive in that they were taken away from loving parents who passed away they were taken with a sibling and given to one family who loved them and cared for them and they're still close close with, um, right through to a woman who suffered every one of the atrocities that you hear about, both from her family of origin to several foster families along the way. And then there was everything in between. And every one of those women, despite their circumstances, used the word lucky to describe their life. And it might have been that she was lucky because she stayed with her brother and she had these nice parents. It might have been that she was lucky because she was able to bring some of her childhood uh, things with her as opposed to some kids who are just taken away with, with hardly anything. And maybe they went to a, a grandparent or they were still in touch with their grandparent. Maybe they were, you know, in some horrible cases, they were they were grateful because they were only sexually abused once or by someone they knew. I mean, it, it, these conversations were so humbling and horrible and to see these women still standing was incredibly humbling. But I thought, lucky, why has each one of these women given me this word? Because, and at first I thought, maybe it's the fact that they have chosen to see themselves as lucky that has made them survive. Maybe it's a good thing that they felt like they were lucky. But I ended up getting to the point where I thought, no, they're all saying that they're lucky for things that every child deserves. You know, they're the basic to be with your a biological sibling and have parents that love you in a house that you feel safe. That's that's the common. That's you know, if you think baseline. of you know your own children or my children, that mm. is the baseline. They also need love and they need consistency and they need discipline and they need an extended family and and so I came to the conclusion, having spoken to them all, that that lucky was a double-edged sword and in fact to be told you're lucky for having something like breathing air mm. it's a bit of a disservice every one of those girls lost a parent or was not able to live with a parent and a lot of them had a terrible experience so so that was that was something I brought to the book and that was something that informed my experience of, of trauma with them as they told me about their lives the, the second channel of of how I researched was the more academic side of it which was through books I read a number of 
both non-fiction, dry things about reactive attachment and uh, books like that. Also, a lot of memoir of both foster parents and foster children and and books about trauma. And Mm. I actually reference a lot of those reading material at the end of the book as well. So, yeah, a lot of research, some of it very difficult and and painful, but when you get to the the book and the stories and the women that I create, I hope that while the book is definitely goes to some dark places and, and perhaps is darker than some of my other books, I hope it reads as uplifting and also, like with all of my previous books, I try to to marry the light and the shade of the, the black humour and the the empowering nature of women and, and how we kind of help each other through difficult times. There's actually a, do you mind if I read a quick passage from no. the novel? Because I think this really illustrates it. Nora says, how do you deal with your feelings in the real world? Nora asked. You bury them, Jessica replied, good and deep. It was a philosophy Jessica had always lived by, but a couple of weeks ago, Jessica had stumbled across an article which claimed that burying toxic feelings could cause cancer. Immediately, Jessica decided she must be riddled with cancer. After all, no one repressed more toxic emotions than she did. The idea of a physical manifestation of her suffering held a perverse sort of appeal. She found herself visualising her insides, admiring the spoils. You, she'd say to the tumour wrapped around her spleen, were caused by that time I had to bail Nora out of jail for the 4,567th time. And you, she'd say to the masses in her ovaries, are the product of every time I had to worry about Alicia. And you, she'd say to the tumours dotted across her pancreas like confetti, are the product of my childhood. She'd almost been disappointed when her doctor gave her a clean bill of health, all that repressed anger and nothing to show for it. She'd been repressing anger about it ever since. (laughs) <laughs> I'm I'm trying not to laugh because that's all serious stuff, right? But then you've got this beautiful light touch as well. And what I love about your writing, and I wanted to ask you about this unputdownable factor to your writing in the pace, but it's about these characters as well and all of that research and the women that you talk to and the way you've developed these characters We're not just there for the plot and the twists and the things that might be coming and finding out what happened. We're there for those characters. We're rooting for them. Like I loved all of them. I wanted to know how the how it was all going to turn out for them. Thank you. Oh, that's 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 so lovely to hear. And that's really I hope I hope that's how readers feel because I'm all about plot. I love things to happen, but I also really care about the characters myself by the end of it and I'm I'm so happy if other people do as well yeah. and and yeah the, char- the the part that you read then was probably what I was trying to describe in that you know I, I'd try to get to the heart and the true feelings that of trauma but without it unnecessarily kind of being dark and heavy it's just these thoughts as as women and mums and like all these thoughts that we have going through our heads all day you know, they are sometimes funny and they are sometimes dark. And, you know, you do sometimes laugh when something really terrible happens because it's just the body's kind of trying to make sense of it. And I like that to come across in my writing as well. Yeah. And that pacing as well that you achieve. So can I ask you about that? Because this has around yeah. what, well, there's probably 60 chapters and then there's all the psychologist chapters as well. So maybe 70, 75 chapters. I have no idea. I was thinking, oh, good, I hope you know. 
I recently spoke to my grade one daughter to her class about writing books and I should have been prepared because I'd heard this before but as soon as I got to the end of what I thought was a very powerful um, talk about writing stories all the hands went up how many pages are you, is your book <laughs> how many chapters how many what's the longest word you've ever written <laughs> I should be up to speed on how many chapters but I was not that's how you know you're talking to a non-writer when they say, oh, yeah, oh, what book are you writing? How many pages is it? Like, how many words? <laughs> it's like when people are still saying that their child is 36 months. And you're like, yes. So they're three. <laughs> I can go with years now. <laughs> yes, exactly. Talk to me about that pacing. That's something that I've noticed with all of your books is that, you know, get in, give us the info, give us a laugh, give us a bit of a shock, bit of a cry sometimes because you do go there. And then get out and move on to the next one. Tell me about that pacing. Someone said recently, a friend of mine who who mentors uh, authors said that their work was similar to to Sally Hepworth's. And and my friend said, oh, in what way? And she said, because it has short chapters. (laughs) And I thought, oh, that's interesting. That's good. I didn't know I was known for the short chapters, but I like a short chapter as a reader. Mm. So I was happy with it. I think that what you just described, get in there, you know, give us something. make us cry, make us laugh, you know, make us feel and get out is just who I am. And I don't like uh, redundant text. I think that so much can be said in so few words. And if it can be said in fewer words, it should be. Unless you were writing one of those beautifully descriptive books, which I do not write. I prefer less is more, but sometimes there is a place for beautiful descriptions. So don't don't at me if you write lots of beautiful description, anyone listening, because I do don't like that. Don't at but... her. And yet you say you don't <laughs> write a lot of description, but I could perfectly picture that house and that yeah, property. Well, thank you. And, I, I, you know, I do think that often you give someone, you sort of will grey-led a description and let them fill in the colour, and, uh, and that's what I try to do. But it's probably at the heart of it is just I write what's interesting to me and I don't write anything else. And I'm more likely to have to pad something out than cut it than cut it back. And, again, as authors, we all go one way or the other and there's no right or wrong. But I, I have ADHD. I have actual diagnosed ADHD, which means I get bored very easily. So I'll just go in. I'll write the, you know, the good part of the chapter. I don't do any of that lead in or lead out that bores me. So I just, yeah, like just the part that we care about. And maybe that's the, that's the, the secret. The other thing I suppose that I do is when I'm getting out of a chapter, I've never figured out how you meant to end a chapter. Like no one's given me that information. Whereas you can find most of the other information in books, but there's no outro. And so I just tend to write the start of the next scene. Like I'll kind of think, well, that's finished, but I don't want to write a naff ending like and then, you know, they all went to bed or something. So I say, and then, you know, then George knocked on the window or something and end it there. Well, here's the end of chapter one. What did you find? She asked the detective. I must read on. Thank you very much, Sally. And often the answer I find, if you don't know how to end a, a scene, is take off the last two lines and see what you've got left because we, as writers, are likely to write a bit too much rather than sometimes the answer is a few, few sentences back. So that brings us then to 
the backstory. So a lot of writers struggle with backstory and how to seed that in without info Mm. dumping. But you use these flashbacks and the women are thinking, how did I get to this place? And then we're in the flashback, which is an active scene. So you're not info dumping at all. You're taking us into more action, really. Yes. Well, that's one way of doing it is, is make the the backstory is the backstory its own story and mm. and in, if it is then perfect if it's active it's good it, I think where you get into trouble is when it's passive and some of it has to be and that should be kept to you know a few lines mm. here and there and I think you get into trouble when if you do have a huge amount of backstory to squeeze in maybe it does need to be its own story or Maybe you do a scene break and just have that there on its own and it's a, it's a stylistic choice. Maybe it's just a, a momentary time lapse. That, that Jane Harper does this so beautifully in The Dry where uh, she will occasionally just jump back into the time, in the middle of a scene, the time where the dead guy, I can't remember his name, but the one, that's not a spoiler, like we know he's dead at the start, um, Aaron Falk's friend, his mm-hmm. childhood friend, and we jump back in the middle of a scene to a moment they had together as children. And so you can see it in real time. And I hadn't seen that done before. But why not? Like if you're a writer, find a way of doing it that is clever or, or a stylistic choice for you. You know, just go. Just Jane Harper did it. Look, the dry did pretty well. <laughs> Look, if Jane Harper and Sally Hepworth telling you to do something, you'd be a fool not to, people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Be creative. Even just that bit I read out before where she's, you know, talking about her ovaries and the tumours and the spleen and everything, but you're getting these little insights into her history and her backstory, you know, the time she had to bail Nora out of jail and the time she worried about Alicia and the product of her childhood. So you're kind of getting these little insights and seeding it throughout in a clever, funny way. I love that. Yes, and that's probably similar to where I said take some things off to, for an ending. Take some things out of your big info dump and, and just put t- a tiny little moment in there and that perhaps could be more suspenseful mm. to do it that way unless it does require it all and then, yeah, find a creative way to stick it in. I feel like I'm coming up with these answers as I talk. <laughs> I should, I'm supposed to be an expert, aren't I? I'm, I'm, I'm fishing for them and drawing them out of your lake. I don't know. That's a terrible metaphor. <laughs> You're very kind. <laughs> They're in there and I'm just getting them out. I'm. It's fun to think about it. It is fun to think about it. And hey, look, most writers I find love to talk about all this stuff and just see what comes up. It's, it's amazing, really. Yeah, but without a sense of this is the way. I hate people that say this is the way, this is how it works, because I just I do it one way and there are so many other ways and, you know, who knows? There is no right way. Yeah. And you've just got to find the one that works for you. And this is my third season of this podcast, interviewing so many different authors who have so many different processes. And it's fascinating because yeah. everyone's different. Some people, right. and I'm going to do a, a really clunky segue into editing here, but you know, some people edit as they go and other yes. people just smash out that first draft and then they'll edit. But some people can literally cannot go to bed until they have edited what they've written that day because they cannot bear to have a horrible sentence on the page. And it works for both of the ways. What's your way, Sally? Well, do you know, I was was about to say, and readers don't know which one is which. They don't. You know, 
<laughs> it's it's like children who walk early, but when they're all 15, no one knows who walked early or who exactly. walked Exactly. Pick the child breastfed. Yes, correct. Mm. Exactly right. Uh, so, of course, I don't edit as I go. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I have a, my friend Rachel Johns will write a book from start to finish, edit as she goes, and then send it to her editor. Like, the end doesn't even go back in some cases and edit because she's perfecting it as she goes. That makes me want to die, that thought. <laughs> my first draft, I wouldn't even show to my dog. I mean, it is just a vomit out of... Words. I sometimes will go back to see what I've written, to refer to something. If I've had a thought that's come along the way, I'll make a little note or I might change it if I'm procrastinating. But for me, it's more just get it out, get it out of my body and uh, and try and keep up with the story while it's coming out. And then and then a lot of edits, a lot of redrafting. Okay. Yeah, so how many times would you go back through and redraft and each time you do are you looking at a different sort of angle for each read through it's really hard to say because I don't know I don't say right this is the character edit this is the plot edit it's a it's a moving beast always and so I'll go back to the beginning with maybe you know I know half a dozen things need to be changed and I'll work through from start to finish sort of making changes here and there but then I'll get halfway through and think, oh, I know why that last scene isn't working. I think I need to do this to the structure. And so I might stop and go back and then cut it up and put it back together and then start finishing off the changes that I started with the first draft. And then something else will come to me. And then I'll try doing this and that. So it's really, it's not as clean as saying yeah. I do this many drafts and I focus on a different thing each time it's more just it's just going over it and over it and over it until all of the things that I think need doing are done yeah yeah and then when does your editor come in at what point and what do you find is the real benefit of that external editor they'll come in when I'm happy with it yeah. what I've done myself which not to say that I'm happy and think oh it's ready to be published absolutely <laughs> not it, it's more that I think I don't know what else to do now or I'm ready for help with this one bit. I want to know if I've got away with that thing that I did <laughs> or if they're going to see it for what it is and I'll have to change it. So with Darling so, Girls, was there any particular thing that you, the editor came back and said, look, this isn't working or? I thought it, it was a bit slow and I, I knew that. Uh, a, a little bit like we talked about earlier, I could I could see that there was some pacing issues, but I also knew that some information needed to be served up before we could get into the the real twists and turns. And my natural instinct would have been to move up the twists. You know, I like things to happen quickly, but I couldn't because it wouldn't have made sense. And so that was feedback that we got from my publisher is that, yes, you do need to give them this, this and this, but that could go later and that could go later and this might fit there. So yeah, I was able to pluck out some things that could either be cut or could go later that helped with the pacing. There was one, again, it was something I'd clocked and was hoping to get away with. <laughs> there was a, a scene with the character of Nora that along the same storyline, um, Nora is very pragmatic about sex and she has a belief that sex is something that you can use to to negotiate your life. And, and, you know, perhaps she's right. If she has sex with a man, maybe he will pay her bills or 
fix her stove or do jobs around the know, house. Yeah, do some odd jobs. Love and that. and that works for her and it's sometimes funny and it's sometimes a bit dark because we know where that's come from. And we see that storyline develop and that storyline went a little bit further in an original draft and it took it to a place that just brought down the story of the book. Okay. And so we pulled that back and that really made a big difference to the the balance. As I said, I, I like to marry the, the light and the shade and the, and the humour and the darkness and I think we pulled that back, which helped there. Yeah, and then developing the character of Miss Fairchild, who is the foster mother, and again, you have to work hard to get a villain to be villainous, but also not a caricature, a, a villain. You want to understand their motivations and things. So we went a bit deeper with her. Also, the relationship between Jessica and her husband yes. had been a little bit on the on the surface, and and I I dug a bit deeper with that. And it really, I think, in almost every situation that we discussed there it's about going a bit deeper pulling a little bit back you know moving things part you know chopping them up as opposed to what every reader will ask when they you speak to them about the editing process which is do they make you change things do you have to change things I've never been told to change anything but it's been more make me believe this do this you know a little bit more do this a little bit less and just kind of get the best book out of you just from talking to a lot of authors, it tends to be that editors, they're very clever, aren't they? They'll sort of say, you know, this might not be working as well as it could. And then you come up with the solution of how you're going to fix it. I mean, it would be lovely if they just said, do this, do that, you know, X, Y, Z, but they don't do they, sadly. You have to figure it out yourself. Yeah. Just tell me what to do. Uh, But even if they, even if they do come up with something, it often doesn't feel right because you as the author, no, you are the most intimately familiar with your characters, so yeah, it's got to come yeah. from you. Um, so obviously we can't go without talking about the twists. Actually, two <laughs> twists. I want to say, but oh, come on, purple. Mm. There's the and there's the mm-mm, neither of which <laughs> I saw coming. When did Good. they come to you and did you have to go? I think you said you had to go back in and had a bit of foreshadowing. And Petronella wants to know as well. She said it's a kicker of an ending um she also wants to know if you had to add the psychiatrist sections in later yeah so the twist the final twist came to me as I wrote and and literally as I wrote the last chapter I just thought oh what if I do this and to be clear I then had to go back and do quite a bit of work to make that work but I kind of thought we were done with the story and then I thought oh to have something else and then that just came to me uh another twist was planned but you never really know until you get to it if it's going to work or not because other things happen along the way so so that one was planned and what was the final thing sorry I combined two questions then didn't I which was really stupid of me so I asked about whether the psychiatrist sections oh the psychiatrist chapters yes so I think it was probably halfway through the book when I decided I needed to have another person's perspective trying to be careful about what I can say yeah another person's perspective and so I started writing that that backstory essentially or that past perspective without knowing how that was going to be revealed in the story like as before we were talking about flashbacks and and how you do it and I think it was about the end of draft one that I thought I could I could include it as a 
uh, as a therapy session and then that developed which tied into the ending and it's a beautiful moment and it doesn't happen with every book when you realize something that solves a few problems you say oh I could do it like this and then that'll make that work and (laughs) when it happens Sally is a very happy writer. (laughs) Did writing Darling Girls teach you anything new about writing Sally? All of these books teach me something and they're all difficult in their own way and have their own challenges. It was harder than some of the books I've written before. I think uh, maybe it was the subject matter, maybe it was tying all the women together, maybe, you know, I, I don't know. I did find it a little bit harder. But I suppose the learning in that is that, yeah, after nine books I know that some of them are harder than others, some of them are easier than others. The hardness or the easiness doesn't tend to have a reflection on how well it sells or how well it's received. Like it's a bit random. And uh, sometimes it's to do with what else is going on with your life at the time. But has contributed to the fact that these days when I put out a book, certainly for the last few books, when it's come out, I felt really proud of them and excited for people to read them. And more than anything, one of the nice byproducts of this book has been that as I've been talking about the foster care system, it has been able to give that a little bit of a platform. And I got a beautiful message from a social worker last week who said that there was a woman who got in touch to ask about becoming a foster carer after she had gone to hear me oh. speak about Darling Girls and I had talked about it. And and that is a, one of the privileges of having yeah. a readership is that you do, I'm not a, I don't write message books and I don't try to tell anyone what to do, but Fiction's so great at highlighting the truths in the community and, you know, it's so humbling to think that some good might come out of it as well. Yeah, I remember Kylie Ladd saying that too about her last book. Mm. I'll, I'll leave you with this. So many people were inspired to become organ donors. Yes. Which is wonderful, yes. really. Yes, that book is fantastic and she yeah. she's so fascinating to listen to about her life experiences with it and amazing sally thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today and to the listeners i know they're going to get so much out of this episode good luck with the rest of the tour and the american launch and everything that follows i very much look forward to continuing to follow you on your instagram journey your packing videos i'm loving the outfits as they (laughs) roll out Thank you. I love that people like them. It makes all of the packing worthwhile. It's so good. So everybody needs to go and follow follow Sally on Instagram. So much more than just book talk over there. It's great. It's really wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, That was such an interesting chat. I hope you loved listening to that as much as I did recording it. Sally is so much fun to be around, but also smart as a whip, as you just heard. And after nine novels, she's really nailed it. She knows exactly what works for her. And I think that shows in Darling Girls. I loved what she said about writing description too. She said, Grey led a description and let the reader fill in the colour, which is such a great way to describe what she does. Like I said in our chat, I could visualise Wild Meadows, which is the house at the centre of the novel, so vividly. And yet when I look back at how Sally describes it in the novel, it's literally 31 words out of what, 80 or 90,000. She wrote, The house looks like something out of a storybook, a classic white weatherboard farmhouse with shutters and a wide porch overlooking the pastures and stables, complete with a huge swimming pool. 
Now, she doesn't say what colour the shutters are or whether the house is one or two storeys. She doesn't describe the colour of the grass in the pastures and whether the stables are old and rustic or shiny and modern. She doesn't tell us how the water was sparkling in the pool and the wide porch was, you know, full of comfortable wicker chairs and large potted plants. And yet I saw all of that complete in my mind. I filled in the colour. And that's where Sally's experience really comes in because as writers, especially new writers, we're so tempted to fill in all that colour for our reader where really we just need to trust the reader and Sally's written enough books now that she knows to do that to trust her readers so much gold in that episode so if you haven't read Darling Girls yet you need to just go and buy it borrow it read it come back have a listen to the episode because everything she says will make so much more sense you can find Sally at her website, sallyhepworthauthor.com, and I highly recommend you both sign up for her hilarious newsletter and follow her on Instagram, where you'll not only find all of her Writerly Wednesday videos from, I think it, she started them in 2020 and then continued them all throughout lockdown and beyond. So there are loads of videos there for you to listen to and watch. Darling Girls comes out in the US in April next year, so it'll be worth following her just to see the outfits for her American book tour, along with all of her other hilarious content. So get into that. All right, let me introduce my next guest. We're turning from family dysfunction with a dash of murder in the real world to family dysfunction with a dash of murder in the incredible invented land of the rising with YA fantasy author Joe Riccioni. Now, Joe hasn't always written YA fantasy. Her first novel, the prize-winning The Italians at Cleats Corner Store, was a literary historical novel. And her story about moving to a new genre is something I know will resonate with a lot of you. Jo's not only a brilliant writer, but she's been teaching writing for a really long time and is also a really accomplished editor. She's helped me enormously with my own writing. I can't wait to share Jo with you. I know you're going to get so much out of the episode. So let me tell you about the novel we're going to be talking about. It's her latest novel, The Rising, which is the second and final in her duology, The Branded Season. Nara and her sister Osha have escaped the citadel and the brutality of the wastelands to arrive in the capital of Rhys, home of the Wrangler. The Shadow City is rife with political power plays, complicated by rumours of a long-awaited prophecy, the coming of a pure healer with the ability to cure the branded. With her healing powers growing ever stronger, all eyes are on Osha, but there are those in Rhys who would kill to control her gifts. If she's to protect her sister, Nara must navigate new allies and old enemies in the Shadow City. That's easier said than done when she's caught between Brim, her first love, and the Wrangler, the man who's stolen her heart but broken her trust. Worn down by lies and deception, Nara is forced to question who she really is and what she can believe. One thing is clear, she and Osha must learn to wield their powers to guard their freedom and to fight for what is right. With dark forces taking control across the continent, the branded must rise to survive. The explosive action-packed conclusion to the epic high-concept fantasy duology, The Branded Season. The first book, of course, was called The Branded. Juliet Marillia, author of the Seven Water series, said about The Rising that it's an outstanding fantasy debut, evocative and thought-provoking. Joe Riccioni combines a poet's touch with the skill of a true storyteller. A compelling read, and I couldn't agree more. Think Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale, 
meets Lynette Noni's The Prison Healer, with a dash of Hunger Games and even a little bit of Pride and Prejudice. Just like Jane Austen, the repartee between Nara and the Wrangler is brilliant, and I would say just as spiky and romantic as between Elizabeth and Darcy, but that's just me. You'll have to read it and and, uh, decide for yourself. If you have a writing question for Jo about her process, whether it be about writing YA, about world building, or how to write a sequel, or even genre switching, send it in to me in the next two weeks. You can either send me a DM on Instagram or Facebook, or there's a form on the website at writersbookclubpodcast.com that you can fill in with your question. As always, I'm giving away a copy of the novel with thanks to Pantera Press. Entries are now open, so head over to Instagram or Facebook to enter and you could win a copy of The Rising. All you have to do is follow the podcast on socials and tag a friend. You'll find us at Writers Book Club Pod on Instagram and Writers Book Club Podcast on Facebook. Thanks so much for listening this month and a big shout out to author Petronella McGovern for your questions for Sally. Thank you, Pet. Petronella is the author of the novels Six Minutes, The Good Teacher and The Liars. If you love reading psychological suspense, you can find Petronella and her novels at petronellamcgovern.com.au and links to all of these people and their socials and everything else are in the show notes. As always, I'm recording this podcast on the beautiful unceded lands of the Garigal people of the Eora Nation, where I'm lucky enough to live and work. I'll catch you next month. Until then, happy writing.